Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're talking about dealing with difference, why it can be so hard to connect with people who are different, and how to navigate that divide. My guests approach this topic in a novel way, by highlighting the importance of similarities and common ground, and not just differences. Their new edited book is called Psychoanalytic Perspectives on Identity and Difference, Navigating the Divide, and it covers theories about identifications and difference, as well as numerous clinical and personal anecdotes that bring this topic to life. The book is edited by my guests, who I'd like to introduce. Brent Willock is president of the Toronto Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis, board member of the Canadian Institute for Child and Adolescent Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, and on the faculty of the Institute for the Advancement of Self-Psychology. Lori Bohm is supervising analyst and faculty at the William Allenson White Institute and former director of their Center for Applied Psychoanalysis and Intensive Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Programs. And Rebecca Curtis is professor of psychology at Adelphi University, as well as faculty and supervisor at the William Allenson White Institute and supervisor at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies. Brent, Lori, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Eugenio. So there are a lot of books and articles and even classes in diversity training that focus on recognizing and even celebrating the ways in which we're all different from one another. But in your book, you're focusing instead on the importance of recognizing similarities and shared experience. Why is this shift in focus important? I believe that this shift in focus is very important in this day and age because I think there's so much so much of an emphasis these days on on how I am not like you, how uh, we don't share sort of common common. Um, there, there's a there's a loss of a of a notion of there being some kind of common humanity that we all share. I think in this emphasis on difference. Um, and I feel like it, it leads to such things as the kinds of policies that are going on in the United States right now, where we're trying, you know, where the government is is um, is is singling out certain a certain um, certain people for exclusion from our culture. So um, I think that a focus on common humanity allows us to see uh, the ways in which we actually share um wishes, hopes, dreams, desires, and so forth. And we are all actually in, in many ways very similar. And I'll just add um, that I've done research that shows that if people are talking about how they disagree and how they're different, they like each other less than if they're talking about how they're similar and uh, what they agree on. Hmm. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, Brent, if you can add something about whether you have any idea how we got here. Like how did we get to a place in our training and in our ways of thinking about diversity and multiculturalism where we're so preoccupied with difference to the exclusion of similarity and sameness? Yeah. You know, uh, I just uh, also, pardon me, comment that um, in relation to what Laurie was saying, Laurie actually wrote the introduction to the book, and she begins with that beautiful quotation from Harry Stack Sullivan that we are all much more simply human than otherwise. And uh, I think that's a, um, uh, a sentiment that pervades the book of our, uh, uh, our sense of uh, not, not a 
denying differences, but emphasizing that we are all much more simply human than otherwise as a basis for dialogue and relationship. Uh, so, now, how do we get there? You said to the situation. Uh, I don't know that I have an answer exactly to that. Uh, well, I suppose there's kind of a dialectical dance in identity and relatedness that is certainly emphasized in the psychoanalytic literature where we are as individuals and I guess you could say as societies and cultures um, constantly moving uh, either towards an emphasis on identity and difference or relationship and uh, grounds for commonality and so apparently uh, at this stage in our cultural evolution in Western societies, maybe around the world, we are a little more focused on the identity, <laughs> asserting our differences, uh, than we are on um, the relational aspect, if that's clear. So then I'm thinking about the kind of training that I got in graduate school and that now that I teach, that I, that I see still happening at the graduate level and in, 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 at many levels in higher education, where the training is definitely focused on on understanding the differences, understanding the other, as as people like to say, do you do you all think that we're teaching diversity the wrong way, or that the way that we teach it is is deficient or missing something? I think that both approaches are important. That is, I think it's important for us to understand. Um, what makes certain cultures or each culture distinctive um, and, you know, and to appreciate the fact that each human being is unique. However, I, I do think that, that there should also be in, in diversity training an emphasis on how we are, how we share common needs and so forth, as I said earlier. So, Laura, I want to stay with uh you because... In your chapter, or the introductory chapter, you start with an anecdote that I think really sets up the question that the book sets out to then answer. And it's the story of the, the crusty old man who you interviewed for your yeah. dissertation. I was wondering yes. if you can tell us a little bit about him and, and your experience with him and what what you learned from that experience and why why you think this particular exchange that happened so long ago made made such an imprint on you? You know, I think that as a naive, that, you know, after all, I was in my 20s and I was kind of this uh, very sort of wide-eyed, naive, um, you know, optimistic um, person. Not that I'm not optimistic now, but, you know, you learn things in life and, and things change about the way you feel. But anyway, this man had, um, you know, seen the horrors of war, you know, World War One, and he had, um, you know, he'd been in the trenches. He had really, uh, he he'd had to, um, you know, face soldiers, you know, head on and shoot them, that kind of thing, kill people like that. Um, and he really was tremendously affected by that experience and felt that I, as kind of a young whippersnapper, if you will, um, couldn't possibly understand him. Um, that he was so very, his, his life experience made him, um, you know, just different than me. And so he really put me through like a, ser almost like 
you know, an interrogation, if you will, trying to test me to find out how a person in my field, and you know, I was a budding psychologist, um, could possibly uh, walk in the shoes of, or at least understand well enough, a person who had had the kinds of life experiences he had had um, in order to, you know, gain information that would be valid. Um, so it, it was just very impactful because I, I think that I hadn't really, you know, here was a guy who basically, if you will, looked like me, you know, he was a white guy. He was, uh, he could have been my grandfather, you know? Um, and it, it was just, uh, it was, it was eye opening, and, and, you know, we had a very earnest discussion and he ultimately allowed himself to be interviewed. So I felt like that was a victory. On the other hand, I felt like he really left me with some important, you know, food for thought. But what do you say, I mean, what do you say to a supervisee that you might be working with who comes in and has faces some, a similar situation? Because honestly, I'm sure many do. I, I, I hear all sure. the time of uh, patients telling their therapist, well, you don't, you're not of my same race or you're not of my same socioeconomic background or you haven't been through what I've been through. So how could you help me? What is that? What is that trainee supposed to say? And even how is that trainee supposed to even feel confident that he or she can be helpful to a person who's so different? I'll share an, an anecdote that happened recently to me. And, you know, maybe I'm, I hope I don't sound a little bit like a broken record here, but um, I was at a, I was at a gathering for the intensive psycholytic psychotherapy program at White. It was a, you know, party, a um, beginning of the year party. And uh, there's a young woman who's in the program who's actually from China. She grew up in China, um, but she came to the United States, I don't know, I think two years ago. I can't remember exactly what brought her here, but she, she is now in our program. She's in the intensive psycholytic psychotherapy program. Um, and she works in, uh, in Chinatown in New York um, with, uh, you know, a very disadvantaged um, immigrant population there. And she was saying to me something like, you, you know, things are so different for them. They, you know, it, 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 she was trying to make the case that it was almost like night and day, that their lives were so different that, that um, you know, than, than say all of us folks on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and so forth. And I, I said to her, and, and, and she was trying to make the case that we couldn't possibly understand. It was the same sort of case. And so I said to her, you know, think about it. I think that your patients actually have the same sorts of wishes for their children that people here have. We want our children to uh, grow up in a healthy environment, have good food to eat, have um, love in their lives, have, um, you know, the opportunity to learn in good schools. And, you know, I went on like that. And, uh, you know, that, that what people want for themselves is, is very similar no matter where they grow up. You know, and no matter what cultural background they come from and so forth. And she was really, you know, she sort of looked at me and went, wow, you know, I'd never thought about it that way. And uh, she was so focused on the way in which, yes, the people in Chinatown who are very disadvantaged and, you know, come from immigrant backgrounds and whatever. Yes, their lives in in certain ways are quite different. Their their cultural practices are different and so forth. But when you get right you know, into the depths of what people really want and need, 
it's the same. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, it seems, in the, the things that we long and for. And I say that to supervisees. You know, I say that. I say that to supervisees. Since we're talking about a likeness and difference in the clinical situation, Rebecca, I'm wondering if you've ever encountered a situation like this, one where you've had to answer the same question for yourself. Can I really help this person who whose experience I cannot really relate to? Well, certainly. And um, I agree with what Laurie was saying. I was thinking about these issues before we began, though, and it occurred to me that, for example, my African-American patients had not stayed with me as long for therapy as the Caucasian ones. And um, I felt a little bothered by that. But, I mean, there is a lot of research that when the therapist and patients are matched on some of these dimensions, um, there's a better alliance and, and a better outcome. So I, I think, it's, you know, it's wonderful if we can find a therapist that um, the patient feels comfortable with in, in many ways. And I think there's certainly much more that we have in common with any person than what we have that's different in terms of these inner longings. So I don't have anything to add, really. Well, well, I'm wondering what those patients that you said stayed with you for not as long as the others that, you know, your black patients are saying typically on average stayed with you not as long as, as your Caucasian patients. Do you, do you feel looking back on those, on, on those patients that the connection um, and the work was somehow inferior or not as strong as it was with your Caucasian patients? No. <laughs> so then I wonder if it might... It, 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 economics, I, I really can't tell you. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Brent, I want to shift gears with you for a moment now because we've... we've you know, uh, just before you shift gears, could I add oh, something sure, to that? Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. Stuff? <laughs> I was just thinking, uh, you had started out by saying, what would you uh, maybe tell trainees faced with a patient from a different background who felt the trainee couldn't understand them because of a lack of commonality of experience? Yes. And uh, your question made me think of um, Bruno Betelheim once said that the analyst or the therapist should be very dumb. Uh, because that that way the patient will have to explain him or herself very clearly, and um, that that comment stuck with me as uh, as interesting, maybe important. Uh, that there is uh, uh, it's also reassuring because we often are dumb or ignorant, or, but um, it it would give a trainee or indeed an experienced clinician. Um, a sense that it's not necessarily a liability, but perhaps even an, an mm. advantage, mm. dumb, mm. Uh, to so that the patient uh, has to explain themselves clearly. And because uh, often, uh, so often that doesn't happen really. We assume we know what the patient's talking about, uh, uh, or we assume we don't. Or something. But uh, there's there's much to be said for um, the analyst and patient. Uh, making things clear rather than assuming that they know, uh, mm -hmm. which can often happen, I think, even with people of very similar backgrounds. Uh, but we're all, in some ways, of different backgrounds, even though we're of similar backgrounds. 
So the analyst should be very dumb. <laughs> you know, yeah. the subtitle of your book is Navigating the Divide. And I kind of feel like what you're saying now implies that both parties have to walk and meet somewhere in the middle, that, that both parties involved, at least in the clinical situation, bear some kind of responsibility perhaps, or at least behooves both of them, patient as well as analyst, to, to make an effort to meet in the, in the middle because what you're placing emphasis on now is that sometimes it's helpful for the patient to explain and make him or herself clear and sort of come, come to the analyst a little bit rather than only leaving it to the analyst to come to the patient. Um, and if you don't mind, I want to push back though on this idea to, to see what you think because I, I've heard patients sometimes complain that they're fine with explaining their lives and their cultures to their therapists, but only up to a point. They're, past uh-huh. a certain point, they feel like they, they don't want to have to educate their therapist on something that a different therapist with a similar background might might already know about. Do you, what do you think about that argument? Well, the first part of your thing about how the uh, both parties, the patient and the therapist, must make some have some willingness and interest uh, in moving towards each other to find some common ground to create some common ground. Uh, I, I think that's very important, and that's it fits with Betelheim's adage. Um, uh, about the patients who might wish or feel it's essential that their um, uh, therapist have some understanding, at least some understanding of what they're talking about. I don't know. I, I can certainly uh, empathize with that feeling. I don't know if it's as necessary uh, as that patient may think it is. Uh, that is, Betelheim's adage may apply there, that... Uh, um, uh, that that may be very interesting to discuss with the patient uh, what 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 that sentiment is like, what that feeling, that fear, that conviction is like. Uh, uh, has it come up already in, in our work together? And uh, uh, was that really an obstacle, or in brackets, was it an opportunity? Kind of mm-hmm. uh, so that that we may have that conviction that oh those white people or those whatever people can't understand me, but it, it may not be as, um, as obvious and tr- true and simple as it seems. It's just, a, it's, it's, we can understand it, but it may not be as valid as it seems to have face validity. Mm-hmm. I would, I just want to add something uh, to that, Eugenio. Um, I think that that can come from lots of different places, that kind of a a wish uh, that you, you know, just you don't want to be asked too much. You want to be known. Um, And it it may not just simply be um, a cultural or a a religious or a difference kind of a thing. It Mm. may also have to do with not having been known, you know, not having felt known as a person. Um, by the people who were supposed to really know you and and care about you. For example, that's one possible outcome of the sort of inquiry that that Brent is is alluding to. Mm. So it would just be important to really investigate that fully, I think. Of course, we're all psychoanalysts. So if I hear you right, you're you're suggesting that the wish 
and maybe even the insistence on being known and recognized readily through, um, you know, by, by someone of the same culture or the same background might, might really contain a, a deeper, more unconscious wish to, to be known in ways that are not, not just about culture. Am I hearing you right? That's what I'm saying. It's, it's, you know, it's a hypothesis that a person would need, a therapist would need to keep in mind the possibility. It obviously isn't necessarily the case, right. but it's one op, it's one possibility. Right. You know, mm. one, of, one of the things that I love about your book is that it covers a likeness and difference, not just in the clinical situation, but between everyday people. And, and Rebecca, I want to turn to you because I think you address this well in, in your contribution to the book. And I want to read a particular line from your chapter and have you tell us what you mean. You wrote, quote, simple contact with those who are different does not reduce prejudice, but intimate and cooperative situations do. And I think it's such a poignant, poignant line. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, there was this um, contact hypothesis started by Gordon Alport from Harvard. And um, it was thought that if you just had people living um, near each other and going to school together, that this would reduce prejudice. Now, the living together did reduce some prejudice, but overall, in terms of school integration and um, many other kinds, it's important. I left out one variable there, that the people be of equal status. And to reduce competition between groups or any kind of prejudice, if people work together on common goals, then that is what gets them united. And, of course, there is sometimes an out-group. They, uh, there was a famous experiment done by Sharif at a boys' camp, um, and the boys were in different groups all summer, red and green, or I don't know what they were. But the only way at the end of the summer they could get them to be friendly to each other because they had competed so much was to get them um, mixed up so that the groups had members uh, from each previous team and working on joint uh, projects. And uh, Elliot Aronson devised something called the Jigsaw Classroom, where the people in the class are mixed up in ways that they have to, each, each group has to contribute a piece. But uh, it's very important uh, for people to feel of equal status. And a good example of this, uh, I think, was my uh, sons went to the school called Hunter in New York. And, in fact, on the chess team, we were the only parents who were both born in this country. But everyone got along so well together because everybody was concerned about the children's education. And uh, you knew that when you went, when your child went to somebody else's house, there would be somewhat similar values to your own. The uh, intimacy variable is also important. If people are in a therapy group, say, sharing their personal experiences so you get to know them well, that helps too. So you said the volume focuses not so much on what keeps people apart, but on how they come together and find common ground. And, and you're giving us some great examples about how that happens. But 
What do you think are the resistances that we all have that we need to overcome in order to connect with someone who's different from us? Why, why do we consciously or unconsciously drag our feet? Well, people want to maintain their view of themselves in the world. And we're seeing this right now politically. There's a lot of selective attention to uh, sources that already agree with our position and not enough uh, reading and watching and being exposed to positions that are different. And I think that uh, there was a Nobel Prize winner named Bohm in physics uh, he talked about dialogues. I think it's really important for people sometimes to um, play devil's advocate and take the other position and see what evidence there is for it. But are you suggesting so that? I, I, oh, sorry, I think go ahead. people should definitely not just look at the media that they know is going to agree with them. But there must be some vulnerability then that we have to be willing to experience in order to do that, don't you think? Definitely. An openness to experience is one of the five personality traits mm -hmm. that's um, a part of what is known as the big five. And most people don't really want to change. You know, Eugenio, I have a thought um, about your question from uh, that actually there's some, there are a few chapters in our book that I think um, speak to what I'm about to say. Uh, there's, there's a chapter in the book having to do with um, the, the struggle in Australia for the Aboriginal people to, um, to be allowed to have their own culture and so forth within, within the uh, country. The country wanted to, uh, basically, there, there's, a, there's a, and I think the same thing happened with the Maori in, uh, in New Zealand, and there's a chapter about that as well. Um, but basically, I think there, that people want to feel like they, it's not only what, it's, it certainly includes what Rebecca was saying, want to maintain their sense of themselves and they don't want to change and so forth. But there's also, I think, uh, a, a, a struggle that people have to feel like they are somehow good enough or even better than the other person. And so one of the ways that I think people think about themselves as better than is that they look at very superficial um, things like the color of a person's skin or the way in which they, you know, get their food or the way in which they live or, you know, things like that. Um, maybe their religion. They look at superficial things um, and they see they see themselves as better than because they have X while the other person has Y and Y is considered less than X. And I think there's a very strong need on the part of people um, to feel better than, uh, and, and then they measure it in these ways that are kind of not important, you know? So. But do you think that desire to be better than, do you think that that's a conscious desire that some people have, or, or do you think that's something that's, that, that's unconscious? I think it can be both. I think for some people it's quite conscious, you know? Uh, I think, you know, think about how things work in, in our society. We have a very competitive culture, don't we? Um, you know, if you look at sports, even sports, you know, people are constantly trying to be the best at whatever it is. Um, you know, they're ranked in school, whatever. Uh, so I think there's a focus on trying to be the best. And, 
you know, pe- perhaps people who don't succeed in those areas have to find other ways to see themselves as better than. Hmm. I think that that's a particularly Western uh, point of view. I've just been yes. reading a book on cross-cultural psychology and, you know, certainly uh, in Asian cultures, there is more of a desire to fit in and not stand out. And um, many times people uh, want to feel like they're like everyone else and, and not different. Brent, I want to bring you in because in your chapter, you you give us an idea about how this happens on a, on a deeper psychoanalytic level. And in particular, you talk about the mechanisms of projection and identification and how they're at play when one person mistreats or, or rejects or attacks another who's different. So, you know, for our listeners who don't speak psychoanalysis, I'm wondering if you can explain how these processes work and, and describe what what you mean by what you call the do-or-done-to dynamic? Sure, Eugenio, uh, I'll try to do that. Maybe I can begin by just giving a simple vignette from a clinical interaction, and uh, I think that might uh, get us into those concepts. It, this had to do with a, uh, uh, a middle-aged woman that I've been treating for some time, and uh, she came to a session saying, very upset, saying that her teenage niece was going to come and visit her for a few days. And uh, my patient said, well, what's in it for me? Uh, someone else should shoulder this responsibility. Damn it, this is the last time I'll ever sacrifice a weekend for my sister's daughter. She was quite riled up. And uh, I was a little bit taken aback in that uh, my sense was that she really liked this uh, this young girl and uh, and rather regretted that uh, the vast geographical distance separating them uh, prevented them having a natural uh, evolving relationship as much as she would have liked so ordinarily she would have looked forward to this visit and seen it as a chance to bond and have a good time and I, I said that to her, that uh, I was, uh, that was my impression of her general attitude towards this niece. And I was puzzled by why she was so put out, put off by this upcoming visit. And uh, she agreed with my observation, but she said, regardless, she's just in no mood to see this niece. And uh, so uh, I, I wondered to her if, um, if her antipathy might reflect something of how she believed her own mother my patient's mother felt towards her when she was a child, namely that she was a unwanted burden. And uh, as soon as I said that, that made sense. It seemed to maybe have a calming influence, an organizing influence uh, for my patient. And she, she said, yeah, yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm playing the roles, she said, of, of, of my, my child self, the, uh, the burdensome niece, and of my mother the irritable woman who doesn't want to be bothered with this youngster. So that, that's the, the, at least the beginning of the vignette of, that, that I, one of the ones I talk about in this book. So uh, in terms of those um, psychological or psychoanalytic terms you mentioned, Eugenio, um, identification and so forth, uh, what I see going on here is uh, uh, the my patient who I call Lorraine, she is um, 
she's reliving something of her relationship with her mother that she carries with her well into middle age. And she has, uh, as a way of sort of surviving that, she has identified with her mother. So that's the identification with the aggressor. <clears throat> Better to be the rejecting mother than to be the rejected kid. And so she, th that's the identification. So she, uh, as a child, in a way, she ceased to be herself. She identified more with the um, dismissive mother. And uh, uh, so, uh, so there's an identification with the aggressor and a disidentification with the self. She ceases to be her vulnerable, needy, loving child self. And the third technical term I put in there, which is common in psychoanalysis, is projective identification. She projects that unbearable sense of herself as being unwanted into her niece on this occasion. So her niece is the unwanted, burdensome child. So have those three things going on, identification with the aggressor, disidentification with the self, and projective identification into the um, niece. So then maybe just to fast forward uh, to the next session or two, after the niece's visit, Lorraine comes to me and she says, well, you know, it was a totally different than I expected. Uh, I had forgotten that the last time my niece came, her mother had been suffering from cancer and her niece was out of sorts. And so there would have been tough issues in the air. But this time that wasn't the case. And the weekend had been wonderful. And particularly she shared an instant where uh, one evening her niece was watching watching some teenage television program and uh, uh, my patient Lorraine's oh brother and she goes off to her own computer to do something that's interesting and not deadly boring to her and then she's up at her computer being alone as she so often is and saying wait a minute uh, maybe I should go and uh, watch that program with my niece it might be interesting and so she goes down, and she does, and indeed it is a lovely experience. And uh, my patient Lorraine, she said, this was a holy grail weekend, <laughs> meaning that, uh, oh, my God, my mother never would have watched a TV program with me, and I so much would have loved that if she had. And here I was having that experience with my niece of uh, an adult and a child, enjoying being together and enjoying the content, even if it isn't their favorite cup of tea but uh, for the adult, but having a good time. So it was a holy grail weekend. So uh, so in, in these uh, vignettes, the, 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 my patient is um, beginning to undo all those um, defensive mechanisms, the identification with the aggressor, the disidentification with the self, and the projective identification into the niece. She's beginning to undo that with the help of the therapy and uh, it gets her to holy grail place. So, uh, so that's, uh, the, uh, those may be cumbersome intellectual terms, how they apply in a sort of ordinary clinical moment. Well, and thankfully Lorraine had, had your help in breaking out of these cycles, but on a, on a day-to-day -day level and for, People who are, are not in psychotherapy 
or who wouldn't think to bring up their everyday interactions in, in their therapy, how, how do we break out of these cycles? And, and do you think that these are cycles that we get into on a day-to-day -day level with, with strangers that we interact with on the street or at the store or in, in traffic or on the train? And, and how do we break out of that? Well, uh, yeah, I'm sure it does happen outside of therapy, but therapy or analysis are great ways of facilitating it and making it more likely to happen and to happen more quickly. Uh, but um, uh, I, I suppose it involves getting a, um, a third uh, uh, position from which to view the situation. In therapy, the therapist provides that. Lorraine is tied up in her mind with herself and her burdensome niece and how awful this weekend is going to be. And so I, as therapists in this case, provide an outside perspective that's able to um, reframe, reformulate uh, uh, in a way that proves useful to the patient. If we're on our own, if we, well, sometimes we have a friend we talk to and the friends or, or the bartender serves that role uh, of, of, of being the third and providing that third perspective that can have a uh, transforming effect uh, if we're lucky. So uh, finding someone else or if we don't have someone else like a friend uh, to, to talk that over with, then maybe in our mind some some sort of third um, uh, position pops up that to uh, maybe where we've seen something like this happen in a play or on television or something. And I think I think you need some sort of third position to help get you out of the the dyadic stuckness. And uh, therapists are good at that, but uh, surely friends can do the same thing if one's lucky enough to have such a friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. I want to move from the everyday to some ex more extreme situations that, that illustrate this phenomenon in a different way. And I want to talk about a chapter in your book written by Dr. Sue Collard entitled Reluctance to Finding Oneself in the Other, Treating an Alleged Pedophile. So this is obviously an extreme instance of difference because Dr. Collard is working with an older man who's been accused of sexually abusing his granddaughter, which makes it very challenging for Dr. Collard to find the kind of common ground and identification that your book is encouraging us to strive for. Can one of you tell us a little bit about this case and in particular, how in the world Dr. Collard managed to connect with this patient and, and what you think about it? Yeah, uh, that chapter interested me, you know, because uh, I myself had worked with a man who, uh, who did not deny that he had abused his daughter. Uh, and so I had some, uh, kindred experience to Dr. Collard. In, in her case, uh, the man she was working with uh, said he had never done any such thing, uh, but he had been taken out of his home by the police in handcuffs, incarcerated, files opened uh, on him with Child Protective Services. He lost his job. So he was rather traumatized. <clears throat> but uh, Dr. Collard was felt uncomfortable in him, I guess felt a divide, uh, uh, navigable or unnavigable, in relation to him, because she was wondering, did he do it? Uh, and, of course, there's no way of knowing. 
but uh, he, I mean, he was the patient was very persistently determined to try and convince her that he hadn't done it. Um, and I'm sure his arguments were good, but in the end, you can never know. Uh, 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 only he, I guess, can know. And um, and the girl involved who had recanted her testimony against him. Uh, but what are those recantings? They're sometimes not uh, not true. So uh, Dr. Claude was uh, troubled by that factor between them. Initially, the her patient had wanted her and and his lawyer had wanted her to give an opinion to the court and to the child protection services saying he had not done it or he was not the sort of person uh, to fit the profile of those who would do this. And she uh, declined to do that uh, um, uh, and, and, but agreed to do the therapy and they went ahead. Uh, at, at some point, uh, I guess she was troubled by this issue uh, of did he or didn't he um, and uh, she took a rather unusual step of contacting a pedophile, an, uh, an acknowledged pedophile, who was an author. He, he wrote uh, books on, in praise of pedophilia, kind of, and, uh, and one on Michael Jackson uh, and <clears throat> issues in Michael's life. And so she contacted him, and her chapter contains some of their email correspondence. And... Um, uh, uh, you, I guess perhaps even as I say that maybe our listeners are wondering wow that's interesting what's going to happen in this dialogue and, and, and her chapter shows what did happen but it's she tells the author pedophile right up front that look you and I are never going to agree on um, the uh, acceptability of pedophilia and uh and I don't even want to go there, but what I want to talk to you about is this concern I have with my patient. Um, it struck me in her saying that, that she was sort of right up front saying there's a uh, unnavigable divide between me and you, Mr. Author. Uh, I think his name was O'Connor. <clears throat> uh, 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 there's an unnavigable divide. I do not believe in adults having sexual relations with children, and you do, and Near, near we twain shall meet on this one. And uh, he accepts that premise for their continuing to talk to each other, and, and they do. And uh, they have a useful dialogue, at the end of which she comes out feeling it's, um, it, it, it's, it's no longer a block between her and her patient. She can work with him on the basis of what she's learned from this author. One thing, and she does, and they work uh, quite well together, and uh, though she never does know uh, uh, whether he did or didn't do this thing with his granddaughter, but the man's life is going better. He's over his PTSD, his depression. He's got slightly more access to his granddaughter than he had before. And all so things are on a, a good path. And uh, one thing that I thought, that I don't think Dr. Kolod mentions, but I wondered if in turning to the to the actual pedophile, she her patient was a possible pedophile, but uh, uh, but this author was a, a proud pedophile, and uh, that in going to him, maybe she was navigating a divide, 
where she was having a a conversation with someone she probably normally would not have a conversation. Definitely. Yeah, and they have a very intelligent, mutually respectful uh, uh, conversation that's useful, certainly to Dr. Collard, and uh, at least the author says he's very pleased at the opportunity to talk with her, and he seems to be. And so, so I think she uh, she kind of went into the lion's den, you might say, and navigated the divide, uh, did it. Uh, overcame, let's say, phobia, or not phobia, but some reluctance to getting to know the other. And uh, and she really uh, took the bull by the horn, sort of went in there, and got to see that this fellow was uh, a pretty interesting, intelligent, uh, feelingful human being, uh, whatever his other thoughts are that she didn't get to know with him, particularly, although she knew that. So... Uh, to me, that's that's maybe in addition to all that Dr. Collard says that's so interesting in her chapter, that may be an additional thing of how mm. how she's navigating the divide. I, I, I just want to add one little thing uh, to this, which is that, um, and I, I completely agree with you, Brent, I think that's a great point. What Dr. Collard was, was trying to write about was the importance of finding oneself in the other. Mm -hmm. in our patients in order to be able to um, identify with them and to be able to help them. And I suppose that is an answer, Eugenio, to your earlier question of how do you help a supervisee? Um, You know, the supervisee needs to be able to find themselves in some way in the other. And perhaps one of the things that happened for Dr. Collard is that she could she could relate to this guy who was the author, who was the pedophile, and she could find herself a little bit in him, even though he was so, his views on what you can do with children were so radically different than hers. But she found a point of contact. And then she was subsequently able to find uh, herself, if you will, in her patient as well. And that helped her to help him. That's a very important point. And uh, I think whatever... Um, the patient's problem is we have to be able to identify in, in ourselves uh, that same aspect. Even if the patient, I haven't ever had a murderer or, or a prostitute, I have had a couple of those, but we all have these um, disconnected, not me parts of ourselves. And if we can find in ourselves a part that wouldn't act on these impulses, but might um, be able to recognize them, um, I think it's very helpful. Well, you know, and in the clinical situation, it's clear that as, as therapists, we it behooves us to find ourselves in the patient because we're there to help the patient. And, and this seems to prove that finding oneself in, in the other eventually does help the treatment. But I'm wondering, once again, outside of the the consulting room in, in our everyday lives. And, and I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment here. Why, why, why should we go through this trouble to find ourselves in other people who are different? What's, what's in it for us? Is does, does this enrich our lives in some way or, or is it just a lot, a lot of work? It's definitely enriching to find out about things that we don't know about. Lori, what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I, I think, I think it's, it, I think it's definitely. I agree with you, Rebecca. I think it's definitely enriching. I, I'm, I'm a person who enjoys traveling very much, and uh, I find it, you know, stimulating on all kinds of levels to travel. But one of the things that I especially like is the opportunity to actually interact with people, you know, all over, you know, places in the world that I, you know have never been to and whose cultures are very different and so forth. And, um, and I, and to have the opportunity to actually sit down with them and have a conversation and, you know, see how they do things, how to, you know, how do they, how do they deal with their children? How do they, um, you know, what's important to them? Uh, what do they value? Stuff like that. Um, I find it very exciting and very enriching. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know in daily life, you know, what, why is this a good idea? I mean, there, there's just, it seems to me that there are myriad reasons for it to, to be a good idea. And it isn't just to enrich the self. It's also, um, you know, to, to create a more collaborative, um, um, place for ourselves to live, you know? So, so I think we, so we have a kind of yeah, social responsibility maybe in addition, in addition so. to doing this for ourselves. Absolutely. Yes. And, and what about for you, Brent? I mean, do you find either in your work or outside your work when you're applying these ideas, when you're, when you're trying to find that piece of yourself in, in the other who's different, does it, does it change you? Does it do something for, for the spirit, for the soul? Uh, yeah, it sure does. Uh, uh, I, Laurie was perhaps saying this, that, um, that, yeah, and getting to know these different people or cultures, uh, we can learn better ways of being the kind of, uh, of uh, being with ourselves, with our partners, with our kids. We can learn things that they do better. Uh, I, I was thinking, I was thrown back uh, sort of autobiographically when Laurie was talking to uh, a, a time in my childhood when... Um, Here's true confessions. Uh, a neighbor had physical disabilities, and I must have said something uh, to mock him. And um, my mother uh, said uh, uh, he would like to be just like we are, to have the physical mobilities and uh, capacities of speech and everything. And um, I th- I'm sure I felt guilty and humiliated, but not so much. More, I felt enlightened by, oh yeah, of course, <clears throat> that I'd seen him as other and different and uh, undoubtedly threatening, so I was being devaluing. And uh, it was a transformative moment uh, to be uh, told that he is much more similar than different. He, is, he has the same <clears throat> wishes uh, and longings and hopes and fears as we do. Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, I was lucky. I got educated early on that. Donald Trump, I guess, maybe is being taught that possibly in his 70s. <laughs> but uh, I, I lucked out there and was enriched uh, by that. I'm glad for that. And, and I'm so glad that I've had a chance to talk to the three of you. It's, it's been a really enlightening conversation. I think that your book is such an important and timely contribution to the literature. Before we go, you want to each tell me what you're working on these days? just uh, finished a book of uh, case studies and commentaries. The case studies are interpersonal, relational ones. 
Um, Brent and Lori and I have a book on passion that is about uh, finished. Uh, those are some things. How about and you, Lori? One of the things that um, I've been very excited about uh, being involved in is we're, we're trying to launch at the White Institute a um, public mental health think tank or a public mental health project to try to address some of the issues that are going on in our world today that are problematic. And one of the things we're, we're doing is uh, trying to develop a dialogue project that will allow, will bring people, what we'll do hopefully is be able to bring people together who are on different sides of the political divide, if, if you will, about a, a particular issue and have them, you know, facilitate a, di- facilitate a dialogue between them um, to try to get them to at least understand where the other person is coming from and have, see some ways in which they're, you know, along these themes more, you know, more similar uh, than they think they are. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very exciting. Wow. How about you, Brent? Uh, uh, yes, thank you, Eugenio. Uh, uh, Laurie and Rebecca, Rebecca and I have been working, this is perhaps uh, maybe something like our sixth book that we're working on now, this one on passion. So we've had the pleasure of working together and uh, uh, creating and actually seeing some results of some fruits of our labors. So that, that's that been good and an ongoing thing that we're doing. Um, myself, uh, I'm working on a book about some uh, some very disturbed people. One being a uh, Canadian uh, Air Force, a commander of Canada's larger, largest Air Force base, who uh, after hours <clears throat> would break into people's homes and steal, do things with women's underwear, make all kinds of videos. Ultimately, progressing to rape and murder and so there's there's someone who's uh, where presents a certain issue of difference mm. uh, in spades, and uh, I, I guess without uh, having probably thought of it in terms of this current book we're talking about here today on identity and difference, it's um, my effort to uh, understand something about him and to, to co- try to communicate that understanding to hopefully a readership. <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, I guess I, I and I'm working on some things that very much do pertain to the topic of today's discussion. Well, those all sound like very exciting and maybe even challenging, but but worthwhile projects. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Brent, Laurie, Rebecca, and I hope that you'll come back again when the next book comes out. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for inviting us. Yes, yeah. thank. You. It was a real pleasure, Thank you. Absolutely. Pleasure was mine. That was my interview with Brent Willock, Lori Baum, and Rebecca Coleman Curtis, editors of the book Psychoanalytic Perspectives on Identity and Difference, Navigating the Divide. I'd love to hear your feedback, so go to my website, www.eugenioduartephd.com, and click on the blog and podcast tab to find this episode and leave me a comment. Have a great week.